Hello everyone, this is Tom Fox. I would like to welcome you to a special five-part podcast series where I take a deep dive into the Miller and Chevalier Chartered 2020 Latin American Corruption Survey. In this podcast series, I visit with lawyers from Miller's FCPA and International Anti-Corruption Practice Group. They focus on matters involving the FCPA, money laundering, business and human rights, and other areas of international corporate compliance. They have experience with every facet of FCPA enforcement, from inception to completion, including developing work plans for international investigations, conducting internal investigations, developing remediation strategies, disclosing issues to the U.S. government, and negotiating resolutions with the government as well as developing strategies for collateral issues, selecting independent monitors, and interfacing with independent monitors. If you ever find yourself in the need for an FCPA or international anti-corruption lawyer, check out any of these lawyers from Miller & Chevalier. Over this series, I will visit with James Tillon, Matt Ellis, Alejandra Almonte, and Greg Bates. In this part one, I visit with firm member James Tillon, on the survey's findings on region-wide corruption risks and region-wide perceptions of corruption and effectiveness of local anti-corruption laws. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, and today I have with me James Tillon. James, a member at uh, Miller and & Chevalier, and James is going to visit with us today on some of the survey's findings on region-wide corruption risk and region-wide perceptions. So, James, first of all, welcome, and thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me on this. Thank you, Tom. It's good to talk to you again. So, James, I know both you and the firm have been tracking this uh, topic of corruption risk in Latin America since 2008, and frankly, I think you were the only guys doing it. Um, But uh, what do you see or how do you see business people perceiving corruption risks uh, in general uh, versus prior years? Unfortunately, the the results show increased pessimism. So survey responses suggest that risk is more prevalent now than in prior years. 54% of survey respondents say corruption is a significant obstacle to doing business, and that's up 10% from 2012. And only 45% of respondents believe offenders are likely to be prosecuted, and that's down from 66% in 2008. And Another depressing uh, finding was that the vast majority of respondents think their anti-corruption laws are not effective or only effective to a small extent. So a lot of uh, depressing numbers here showing that things are actually might be worse than they were in 2008, 2012, and 2016. James, I'm a big believer in the Andre Agassi philosophy that perception is reality. And I really feel like that because if people feel that way, they tend to think it's that way. But you guys uh, obviously took a deep dive into this, and I wanted to see what kinds of questions you asked respondents that might have helped perf- per- inform these perceptions or right. inform the responses that you got. Right. So, you know, this also reflects the the motivation for doing the survey in the first place, and that was try to get beyond the transparency international sort of one number, one score for a country and, and try to get more uh, a nuanced appreciation for the issue of corruption in a country. And so, uh, for example, in this area, uh, we're asking things about, are you aware of anyone being prosecuted for bribes? Do you believe your company has lost business to competitors making bribes? 
if you've lost business, did you report that? And if you reported that, was it investigated? And if you didn't report it, why didn't you investigate? And that sort of gives you a, a much better sense of people's faith in, in whether uh, corruption matters will be in, um, enforced or not and why they don't go forward to report corruption. And so it's sort of tied into rule of law issues as well. And so you get a bit, quite a bit more information with the, the additional questions we're asking. James, uh, I'm going to withhold how I feel about this next question until you uh, give give your answer. Yeah. But I certainly have some feelings on it. But you find it odd that risk or corruption risk has gone up at the same time it appears that enforcement has gone up within the region. Yes, it's odd. And it's something that I've de- we've debated, Matt, Alejandra, Greg and I, we've talked to our survey partners and you know, w- one part of it that you you can may pick up from the press is that some of these in- increased enforcement action actually have led to some backlash. There's some view that some of the enforcement actions are politically motivated as opposed to to a, a true effort to eradicate corruption. Um, there's also a, a lack of confidence in judicial systems that's related to that. Um, it's also a possibility that the increased enforcement is actually shining more of a light on corruption, that maybe people weren't as aware of how endemic corruption was. Yes, maybe they encountered it in some of their daily lives, but didn't realize how much it permeated their governments. And so these increased enforcement actions actually have led to this uh, pessimism. Um, but, you know, it's hard to find a, a you know, a, a, an exact answer, and it may differ from country to country, but but yes, it does suggest some backsliding here, but hopefully uh, in the long term, it's still on a, a good trajectory because of this increased enforcement, because of some of these new laws that have compliance requirements. Well, I won't disagree with your finding that risk has gone up while enforcement has gone up, but I will have to say I really take a different view on what mm-hmm. that might mean. And part of my experience is coming from the energy industry in Houston. And as you recall, in the sort of the late aughts of the first decade of this year, we had a, a plethora of enforcement actions involving energy companies. And I think part of that was, number one, you know, the DOJ went through an an industry sweep, but it also caused companies to take a closer look at their own uh, compliance programs. And for a variety of reasons, whether it be Sarbanes-Oxley or a competitor got in trouble, so they took a look at their operations in a similar situated company, country rather. So um, I don't find it odd that you would have both risk and enforcement go up. And I guess from my experience, I don't want to say they fit hand in glove, but they certainly are consistent with each other. So I wouldn't really necessarily view that as a negative. That's a that's a fair point. And, and you know, these enforcement actions have led to quite a few changes in how companies are approaching doing business in Latin America. So, for example, because of Lava Jato in Brazil, and you mentioned oil and gas, the oil and gas companies using agents in Brazil has essentially ended. And so it's, and then that has um, brought more control over, over payments in, in the country and, and hopefully will, will lead to less corruption in, in that industry, in that country. Uh, so you, yes, it's uncovering a lot of corruption, but there are some improvements on the compliance side that companies are making, even if uh, the countries are sort of uh, may not be enforcing their laws as well as they should be. 
Now, and my other observation would be that just as companies evolve in their thinking, both around doing business ethically and in compliance and with compliance programs, regulators evolve in their thinking. And certainly if you look at the U.S. model, we saw aggressive enforcement, uh, as I said, last decade and perhaps the first five years of this decade. And then maybe a little bit of a change to try to encourage more self-disclosure so that uh, I, I would say it might be fair to assess the Brazilian enforcement efforts as still in the relatively early stages. But as the Brazilian enforcement effort uh, matures, they may find it uh, to their advantage from an enforcing position to also encourage self-disclosure. So I do see really room for uh, hope in this finding. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely fair. And in fact, the Brazilian respondents were some of the most optimistic still and and, and of especially in assessing their own laws. And, and there's still, I think, pride in, in what Lava Jato accomplished, although tinged with some more recent pessimism given some of the country's direction. And you may have seen quite a lot of press recently about COVID-related corruption in the country, in, in particular in healthcare for uh, taking advantage of government contracts related to healthcare. So it's a, it's a complicated uh, analysis for Brazil. There's so many good signs. Uh, and then, then re- more recently, there's been quite a lot of negative uh, issues. So yeah, it's, it's complex. James, I was wondering if you might be able to share with us which governments in the region are seen as uh, most corrupt or perhaps least corrupt. Yeah. So we, one of the more valuable things I think we ask about in, in trying to get more nuanced on, on risk is asking about different government entities and agencies and having the respondents rate the perception of corruptions for those within a country. And so instead of just having, you know, the TI number for Argentina, you can actually say, okay, the police are X, executive branch is Y, legislative branch, and and more tailor your, your approach to that risk. What we found in overall in the region is that political parties and the legislative branch score the worst. Political parties at 77% seen as significantly corrupt. Legislative branch is 70%. But other government entities are are not far behind, such as the executive branch, judicial branch, police, municipal, local governments, state-owned companies. Um, And then investigative authorities are around 50%. Um, so I think it's helpful be to be able to go into the survey, go to the particular country and view the different branches of government because you may not be dealing with all of them or you you can tailor your response a bit more to understand where you're more likely to encounter corruption. James, after the particularly after the initial passage of the Clean Companies Act in Brazil, we have seen some countries modify their anti-corruption laws. Did you find that this has uh, had a per- perception of effectiveness on local enforcement at all? Not so much, maybe not so much on local enforcement, but on compliance practices, definitely. And that's one of the uh, more encouraging um, results of the corruption uh, of the survey. So, for example, Argentina, Brazil, Chile, Colombia, Costa Rica, Mexico, and Peru have all changed their anti corruption laws over the past few years to. Um, establish requirements or mitigation credits for companies' anti-corruption compliance programs. And 
the survey show that respondents from those countries tend to show greater optimism for anti-corruption laws having an impact. They perceive the anti-corruption laws as effective and they work for companies that have better compliance practices than, than companies from the rest of the regions. And so Uh, companies in these countries are more likely to have an anti-corruption policy. They're more likely to have a compliance officer. They're more likely to have a whistleblower line. They're more likely to conduct training, all positives. And it's so, again, another helpful thing for a compliance officer in the U.S., if they're going into a new country in Latin America, of understanding of what the, the playing field will be like. Will the business partners they want to deal with be receptive to due diligence, understand compliance requirements, also JV partners or acquisitions. And so these laws are having a positive effect on the compliance environment. And that's helpful for companies subject to the FCPA in dealing with those companies and in those countries. James, one of the themes I've heard you articulate and specifically say uh, several times in this podcast is the rule of law. I was wondering if you invite in with a few of your thoughts on why the rule of law is so critical. Yeah, I think it all has to do with, with faith that in in the system. And so one of the survey results about why um, you wouldn't report uh, issues of corruption points to a lack of faith in the investigators, the judiciary, and the police. And then when you see how those agencies rank in the region, it's quite depressing because when you, those are, there's no faith in those, then you're not going to have people report corruption issues. And in fact, this issue of police corruption is is particularly damaging because uh, not only police may not investigate corruption in reporting crimes that you may be asked for a bribe and sort of compounds the issue of, of the corruption. And then also, if you ever are in the court system, the fact that the judiciary isn't clean means you're not going to get a fair shake. There's not going to be due process. There's not going to be rule of law. And so those, I think, are the when you're looking at a branch of government, which of what could be most damaging to a country's uh, corruption efforts. A lack of a clean judiciary is probably the worst one to have. James, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode, but I wanted to thank you for taking the time to visit with us and uh, share some of your thoughts on the survey. Great. Thank you, Tom. I really appreciate it. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode and our special five-part exploration of the Miller and Chevalier 2020 Latin American Corruption Survey. I hope you'll join us again tomorrow where we visit with Matt Ellis and we take up some of the survey's findings on country-specific issues. This special five-part series on the 2020 Latin American Corruption Survey is a special presentation of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.